Building a portfolio with Fidelity Basket Portfolios is kind of like making a sandwich. It's as simple as picking your stocks and ETFs, sort of like your meats and other topics, and managing it as one big, juicy investment. Mmm, now that's pretty good. Learn more at fidelity.com slash baskets. Investing involves risk, including risk of loss. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSC SIPC. Are you tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? Well, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey friends, we have a little live show update. We are still just riding the high of our live show in Philly, our first live show in like almost four years, and it felt so good. There are still tickets left to our shows in Boston on June 16th and New York on June 22nd. And we would just love to see you all there. We will be at City Winery in both of those cities, and we will be recapping an iconic episode from Emily Maynard's season of The Bachelorette with some very special guests. Jill Chin will be with us in Boston, and Arden Marine will be with us in New York City. You can find ticket links and more information at lovetoseeitpod.com. Just click the LTSI live tab and you can also find these ticket links, the link in our bio on Instagram. We would love to see you there. And if you want to watch that episode before the show, you can find it on Hulu. It is season eight of The Bachelorette, episode five. We really hope we get to see some of you in person soon. And now on to the show. Just watch me love myself That's all I want Got what I want That's all I want I'm not sorry I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. And this is Love to See It, an obsessively detailed recap podcast about reality dating shows like The Bachelor and other pop culture that makes us laugh, cry, and curse the patriarchy. We can't live with these shows and we can't live without them, but we can break down every juicy moment and unpack all the weird messages these shows send us about love, sex, and dating. Welcome to Love to See It, a podcast about the sparkly, imperfect, much maligned lives of influencers. We're joined today by Stephanie McNeil, a senior editor at Glamour and author of the new book, Swipe Up for More, Inside the Unfiltered Lives of Influencers. Steph, congratulations on this book, baby. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> we're so we're so excited to have you back. It's been a little while. I know. I know. I miss you guys. I'm excited to be back. Yeah. Well, I have been following your journey and also the journey of many influencers 
through your social media presence. So thank you for the work you do. Like whenever mom talk blows up or something, I'm like, Steph will have the answers I need. And you did. You're the influencer to give us all of the information we need about the influencer. <laughs> An influencer it's really influencer. meta. <laughs> That's so, I'm a, I, I don't know. I'm like a journfluencer, journalist influencer. <laughs> Aren't we all Aren't we at all? this point? <laughs> there's, yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> there's just like, you have to be. I saw a tweet yesterday that was like, I'm so exhausted by writing the article and then doing a tweet thread of the article and then doing a TikTok of the tweet thread of the article. (laughs) I just want to go home. And I was like, oh my God, yeah. Yeah. That's the world we live in. Yeah, but I don't know. I I like Instagram. I think it's a really fun platform. Yeah. Honestly, so do we because we spend a lot of time there and get a lot of shopping recommendations. They're a very dangerous place. (laughs) (laughs) So we obviously follow all kinds of influencers because we're humans and we're alive in this world right now. And what else is there to do with your time? But I think Emma and I mainly come to the world of influencers via reality TV. Like that's what where we first started taking notice of it. Like the Bachelor to Influencer Pipeline is a huge part of the Bachelor ecosystem. But we were we were wondering how you came to your interest in influencers and how like which influencers kind of led you into that? And when did you start to realize that that was something that really fascinated you? So it was right after I graduated from college. I had gotten a job, uh, moved to LA, well, moved back to LA. And I was living by myself. I was working overnight. uh, And I don't really know why I started following bloggers, but I did. I think initially I was looking for healthy recipes because I was living by myself. And, you know, I I had done some cooking in college, but not really. And so I was trying to figure out, like, what to feed myself. Um, So I started following this group of bloggers called Healthy Living Bloggers, which I don't know if you guys are familiar with these people. No. No. Oh, my God. So they were kind of major back in the day. Um, There was (laughs) this big article in Marie Claire about them, which was, like, very scandalous and viral, where they accused them of essentially, you know, not sharing very healthy habits to their followers. But it was these group of women who... It was... They were kind of like diet blogs. They were, like not full diet blogs, but they were about like health and wellness before that was really a thing. Um, in like, you know, like how you would have a wellness influencer now, but it was like the 2010 version of it where it was like a little too into like, how many like calories does this have or something like that? And I wasn't, I wasn't trying to, you know, lose weight or anything, but I, I was just trying to be like, quote unquote healthy, you know, like I'm going to make healthy dinners for myself or healthy breakfast for myself. And it was this thing where they all knew each other. They all commented on each other's blogs. They all like shared each other's recipes. So it was like almost entering like a cinematic universe where you have followed one and then you (laughs) followed another and then you followed another. And the very first influencer I ever followed Her name is Eating Bird Food, and she's still an influencer. I think she just came out with a cookbook. And (laughs) she had this blog where she just posted recipes, and then I just kind of fell into all of these people um, and got really into reading blogs. And 
then it just kind of like took over from there. Like I said, I, I worked alone overnights doing like homepage editing. So I was really bored a lot and I was just kind of like waiting for things to happen. So sounds right. (laughs) Google used to have this product called Google reader where you could subscribe to all of these blogs. I loved Google reader. (laughs) It was so good. And so I had all these blogs in my Google reader and I went look at them all day. And then once I got to work and I like did my work and then I had, you know, inevitably around 1am nothing to do. I would just sit and read my Google reader. Um, so that was really where I got super deep into influencers. Um, and then it's kind of, you know, like following, uh, down the rabbit hole where it's like, now I'm going to follow fashion bloggers. Now I'm going to like check out mommy bloggers, which is like super weird because I was 22 and wasn't (laughs) trying to have kids or anything. I briefly worked on HuffPost parents for like six months. And so my Google reader was full of like OG mommy blogs because I had to scan them all at 6 a.m. every morning (laughs) to like find stories. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's so funny. Um, And it's really funny whenever I mention so they are called for short HLBs, like healthy living blogs. And whenever <laughs> I mention them on my Instagram now, people just like freak out because they were like on this random quarter of the internet, there was such a big thing. Um, but they were really kind of them and fashion bloggers and mommy bloggers were really kind of the first influencers in many ways. Um, and they just, you know, really kind of set the seed for this industry, which is now you know, a multi-billion dollar industry. Um, yeah, so I've, I've been OG, I think, <laughs> really back yeah. in the beginning. I love That's that. And I think, you know, we're around the same age. There mm-hmm. is just something about when we were sort of entering our young adult lives, entering the workforce, it was the really, like, the, the very beginning of this industry. Like, I also used to read fashion blogs because I was like, I'm an adult now. Mm-hmm. I need this guidance. Like, I feel like <laughs> your answer step is kind of getting at the use case for influencers in the first place and why they work so well. It's like, we are all kind of searching for help and trying to live our lives the way that we, like, see them playing out. And I think that there's no better example of that than being, like, a young adult with your first job living in a new city and being like, okay, how do I, how do I put myself together? How do I like show up at a job? Oh, absolutely. What what is this adult life supposed to look like? Absolutely. I would go on Pinterest. I remember this so vividly on my laptop before I would go out with my friends and I would have, I don't know, what's a, what's a very 2010 fashion item? Like, oh God. Fuzzy vest. And I would t- type like fuzzy vest outfit into Pinterest. And I would like try to find long necklaces. Yeah. I would like yeah. bubble necklace. <laughs> I would like, and I would literally like have, I had so little understanding of like how to dress myself that I was like, okay, I have this one item for forever 21. I'm going to look and see what bloggers are how they are styling this one item. And I would just like copy it. Um, And that was something that, you know, when I was writing the book and really thinking about all of this, just really trying to examine how many ways that these people have impacted my life and just like how many times I have relied on them. And it is a really long list. And I think it's something that 
a lot of people feel that they don't really think about, um, or like they do that they don't really think about. Um, and it doesn't have to be in like a very, you know, serious way. It's just like, oh my God, I was totally just dressing the way that bloggers dressed for like five years because I, you know, was kind (laughs) of coming into my own and trying to figure out like my own personal style or whatever. Yeah. I love that. I think it's interesting for me to think about because I think I came to influencers a little later in life because I had this delusion that I had innate creativity and taste. And then as time goes on, you're like, I feel like other people are doing this better. I need to turn to the experts. And now that I'm in my 30s, I'm like definitely following influencers for fashion tips, which I did not do when I was younger and equally clueless. Um, But it's really just what women's magazines have also done for a long time, which is something that you get into in your book. I remember my grandma clipping articles that were like, you know, how to tastefully like make a cabinet to conceal your bedroom TV or whatever, or like, yeah, healthy, (laughs) healthy recipes. And the way that that has like transitioned into the influencer space is so fascinating. Most of the book is actually templed around these like three influencers that you profile who are very different in a lot of ways. Caitlin Covington, Myrna Valerio, and Shannon Bird. I was really curious how you settled on these three women as the entry point into this industry. Yeah. So when I was initially thinking about writing the book, I had just read that book, Three Women by Lisa Taddeo, which was very big in like end of 2019. I love that book. It's so good. And to be completely honest, I hadn't read a ton of narrative nonfiction. And that was kind of my project for the next three years is I spent a lot of time reading a lot of narrative nonfiction. Um, but I felt like I would kind of read the big nonfiction books like Educated or, you know, Glass Castle or something, you know, something like that. But I hadn't read a ton. Um, but I had just recently read Three Women. And when I initially met with my editor, I had this, you know, she was very much of the idea that she wanted to go super deep. Like she felt like that would, it would only work if we went super deep. And we had this kind of idea we bandied around that was like three influencers or like three women for influencers without, you know, the sad parts of three women. (laughs) Um, And so that was kind of the initial idea. And I, I had a couple of, I didn't want to profile three people who were just exactly the same, or I feel like represented the same things of the industry. And I think part of me, like I said, I really entered the world through HLBs and some of the only influencers I followed for a really long time were running bloggers because I like running and like, I've just followed a lot of people for a really long time. And I think part of me was really intrigued by how that's a part of the industry that people don't really think about a lot. And people don't, I think people don't really think about influencers as being this like niche content creator sort of genre where you can really become an influencer based on a hobby or a sport or you know, something really random and build a career out of it in interesting ways. Um, So when I was thinking about who I wanted to choose, I think I kind of gravitated towards, well, you know, I have this personal connection to running and I want to pick, 
you know, one of these niche content creators who was really outside the box of like the typical influencer. Um, and I had read a piece in Runner's World about Myrna, um, who was a teacher who enjoyed running and really liked to write about um, how she enjoyed running for the sake of running, um, enjoyed running as a plus size woman, as a black woman. Um, and she had this blog where she just wrote about her running journey. And she ended up getting a feature in the Wall Street Journal and then in Runner's World. And I subscribed to Runner's World and I had remembered her from that piece. So I reached out to her um, to see if she'd be interested and she was. And then after I had her, I knew I kind of wanted to pick someone who was very emblematic of the industry. Um, so I had a short list of people who I was like, these are the influencers, influencers. <laughs> um, like when you think of an influencer, you think of these people. And um, I thought of Caitlin Covington because she is just very much kind of one of the tent poles of being an influencer. She is just, she was Christian girl autumn. You know, she's like a meme <laughs> for being an influencer. Um, and she has been around for so long and has really sustained her business through so many different versions of what being an influencer is. You know, she started with a blog and then on Instagram, TikTok and all this stuff. Um, so I was really happy when she agreed to do it as well. And then honestly, I felt like I couldn't write a book without having someone who was a mommy blogger, specifically a Mormon mommy blogger, because they are just like, I think in many ways, the people that started this industry and it's something that people are really interested in. Um, but I didn't want to pick. I also really liked the idea of picking someone who was very polarizing because I just didn't feel like it would be interesting to, I don't know, just like have someone who is like similar to Caitlin where, you know, she was very well respected and loved and like, you know, but was a Mormon mommy blogger that just like wasn't super interesting to me. And I thought of Shannon Bird because she is someone who has also built this really incredible business for herself, has really, you know, um, been in the industry for a really long time, but is this very polarizing figure on the internet and also is very much like kind of the antithesis of like perfectly curated mommy blogging where she's just, mm -hmm. I post everything. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I have no interest in being perfect. Um, so I thought that was kind of a, I thought it would be really interesting to talk to her, to be honest, and to like explore the idea of like being a mommy blogger through her. Um, and so, yeah. So then I had my three. Yeah. I think that ended up being a really fascinating triad for that reason. And Shannon yeah, is worked. a very interesting figure. <laughs> um, I think we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back for more with Stephanie McNeil. Can you keep This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes there will be something that is just like nagging at me, bothering me about something in my life, and I just swirl it around and around and around in my head and don't quite know how to address it. And something that can really help me sort that through and like take action is therapy. I completely agree. I've been really stressed lately because I've just been getting sick over and over again. And before I know it, I'm feeling a lot of emotions and I don't even 
connect where they're coming from with the actual origin. We all carry around these stressors, right? And when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a great safe space to get things off of your chest and figure out how to actually work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash love to see it today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash love to see it. Anyone who's been listening to this podcast for a while or even not that long knows that we love article. I mean, honestly, I'm looking around my home right now. Coffee tables from article. That lovely chair out on my deck. Article. Our big console. Article. I'm My bed frame. Article. This is an article household. It is. And it's, I mean, it was an inspiration to me. We finally got our first article piece of furniture recently, our new couch. And my husband and I are both constantly just like, how did we live before this couch? This is such an improvement over what we had before. It's so comfortable. It just seems to get more comfortable every day. I mean, it's the couch you dream of. And the reason that we have both been able to find ideal furniture on Article is because Article believes in delightful design for every home. And thanks to their online-only model, they have some really delightful prices, too. Their curated assortment of mid-century modern, coastal, industrial, Scandi, and boho designs makes furniture shopping simple. And their team of designers are all about finding that perfect balance between style, quality, and price because we all want the best of all of those three things united in one piece of furniture, right? Plus, they're dedicated to thoughtful craftsmanship that stands the test of time and, you know, looks good doing it. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash LTSI and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash LTSI for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list, as they should, because it's very important. If that's you, then make this year the year you finally check it off your list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Wow, that is really fast. Their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning link Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I personally used Babbel before I headed off to Paris for three weeks, and it was so helpful just kind of giving me back the basic understanding of French, allowing me to interact with people in restaurants, in shops, and, you know, just not make a total fool of myself when in a foreign country. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash LTSI. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash LTSI. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L. 
el.com slash LTSI. Rules and restrictions may apply. And we are back. And you gave us the perfect segue, Steph, because as you nodded to, your book does focus a lot on the world of Utah-based, typically Mormon lifestyle bloggers. A lot of them are moms. Mom content becomes a part of their brand. Why is that where the industry started? Like, what are the confluence of factors that just created this this really lucrative? (laughs) Mormon mommy blogger, like Petri dish. (laughs) So that's a question that I've personally had for a long time. And there's been a couple of articles about it over the years. It's kind of like, why are all these mommy bloggers Mormon? And I talked to Shannon and her husband, Dallin, about it. And they kind of confirmed a lot of things that I think people were already kind of talking about that I think make a lot of sense. And it's basically because I feel like a lot of factors came together at the perfect time to kind of create what the industry is now. Because Blogs were a way for people to connect on the internet before there was any money in blogging or influencing. And there were a lot of women who, you know, around the same age as we are, who are Mormon, and they were raised in, you know, the same conditions that we were raised in, where, you know, it was very much like 90s, girl power, like you can do, I don't know. I got a lot of messaging. It's like, girls can do anything a boy can do, you know, all of this kind of stuff. Um, and they all had the same things and they're very highly educated. They went to college, but, you know, in the Mormon culture, it's very expected. And I think many people want to get married very young, have children very young, And so what Dallin told me, which I think makes a lot of sense, is, you know, it was the mid-2000s or early 2010s. There was a lot of women who were 23, 24, 25, who were highly educated, were very motivated and very ambitious, but were also young mothers and didn't have really the bandwidth to also work outside the home. And so... Mm they started creating content about being moms on blogs. And then they were kind of the perfect models slash spokespeople for any parenting brand to ever exist. (laughs) Because, I mean, they were like beautiful young mothers. Like, Mm. that's kind of catnip for baby brands. And white. Yeah, white. So many of them are very blonde. (laughs) Beautiful young white mothers. Yes. Gorgeous, long, feathery hair. Exactly. It really... (laughs) And I think, you know, they were very cunning about it and very smart. And also, it's kind of like, you know, I asked them, why do you think that so many people in your city are bloggers and have become famous bloggers? And their question back to me was kind of like, well why are there so many tech bros in Silicon Valley? And it's kind of like (laughs) one begets the next, begets the next. And so, you know, if there's a girl who, you know, lives in your town, who is, you know, the same as you pretty much, who starts a blog and, you know, really works really hard on it and starts getting a lot of money and success, and you are also a young mom, it's kind of like, well, if she can do it, I can do it. And it kind of spreads, you know, it's almost like Mm. a trend. Um, and so I think that makes the most sense to me. Like it was just kind of this 
great factors of like ambitious stay-at-home moms with brands who wanted, you know, beautiful moms for their advertisements. And it all just kind of came together. And then, you know, they were, to their credit, they were cunning enough to really make a business out of it. Um, And I think set a lot of the blueprint for how, you know, people create content on the internet now um, and make money off of it. Absolutely. And something that I found so interesting and important is that you make a point right at the beginning of the book to be like, I'm, this book is going to take the world of influencing seriously. Mm-hmm. And you make the point that often, you know, the larger media apparatus um, has a history of, of not taking this massive industry very seriously, but you also are very willing to critique it. And I feel like I'm sort of always searching for what that balance is. Like, how should we be talking about influencers both without just dipping into these misogynist tropes and also without kind of overcorrecting and going like full girl boss, this is a moral good. Yeah, I think that in general, in order to critique something with any sort of heft, you have to at first show it respect. Um, And I think that influencers are really analogous in a lot of ways to reality TV where, you know, I there is this like real just block for a lot of people to take it seriously as a form of entertainment. And I think that that's how people still view influencers is for some reason, people who, you know, will fawn over themselves for, you know, prestige TV will like not, will like, say, oh, Vanderpump Rules or whatever is, you know, not television or these people are not celebrities. And it's like, why? It just doesn't make any sense, (laughs) Um, at least to me. And it's the same with influencers. I I mean, I think think that women making money off traditionally feminine things is never going to be taken seriously. You know, like, Mm -hmm. I think you look at the difference between how people treat beauty, the beauty industry versus like the sports industry. Like why is the sports industry considered like serious and prestigious? (laughs) Like, (laughs) honestly, I have no idea. Um, (laughs) And, you know, I think that it was an uphill battle from the beginning because I think like one thing that a couple of influencers have said to me in various ways over the years that's always really stuck with me. It's like, why does the fact that I write about products I like or fashion and I make money off of it, like make people so angry? Because like, truthfully, there's no real difference between what influencers are doing versus, you know, my friends working at a marketing agency are doing really And there's certainly not a lot of difference between an influencer writing a blog post about, you know, their, like, reaction to reality TV and, like, you know, a publication doing that. It's all, it's all very similar. And it's, like, someone told me once something along the lines of, like, just because I'm not, like, in the mines for 12 hours a day doesn't mean that I'm like not working. And like, if you look at the work days of 
me versus someone working doing marketing in a corporate environment, like they're probably pretty similar. And why is the fact that I'm working for myself make people so angry and consider that, you know, frivolous and not work versus working for a corporation? Because corporations are good. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. As we all know. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And I think like there's a lot of talk right now about, um, you know, oh my gosh, all these Gen Zers want to be influencers. Like, that's so horrible. Oh my God, like what is happening to the world? And it's like, okay, but like, what if they just want to work for themselves over a corporation? Isn't that kind of cool? I don't know. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's it's like, if you really, really think about it, the content that's being created, especially I would say on blogs and Instagram, where it's a lot of written world, word, beauty shopping, you know, traditionally feminine things like why is it that people are mad that someone can make all the money that a corporation would make off of that and just pocket it like shouldn't we be celebrating that a little bit isn't that like cool I don't know yeah I think it's funny I think a lot of people I think of this as the Emily in Paris problem when she's constantly just like doing marketing campaigns from her phone and it takes like 30 seconds and then she has all the rest of her time to make out with every guy she meets in Paris. <laughs> There's like, you see this Instagram post and you're like, well, I can post something on Instagram mm-hmm. in three minutes. And then I have the rest of my day. There is very little understanding of how much work it can be to make that content. Whereas if you look at a marketing spread, you just assume that a whole team worked on that, you know, mm-hmm. for months. And so I thought it was really fascinating to get this glimpse into, for example, Caitlin Covington's process. Right. And how she entered influencing from having originally wanted to work for like a fashion magazine. Mm -hmm. And that made something click for me. I was like, oh, of course, like this is the new fashion editor. And while that might not be the job that we respect as much as like a brain surgeon, I think we all can agree that being an editor at a magazine is a real job and it takes a skill set and it requires days of work to put these products together. And she's doing it all by herself and delivering value for the brands that she is writing about. And so the problem is that a lot of people just look at that and they're like, well, I could just take a picture and put it on Instagram. And why can't I get I'm not getting paid a million dollars for that. So neither should she. I think Mm -hmm. that to me, that's always seemed like a big part of the issue. Yeah. Like the labor is totally concealed in a lot of ways. Which is often the case with women's work. (laughs) Women's work. (laughs) Yeah. 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 (laughs) I think too, you know, people get very angry and, you know, I think there's, I talk in the book a lot about uh, the pitfalls and kind of moral reckoning of, you know, making money off putting your children on the internet. But setting that aside, you know, let's say that, let's talk about a hypothetical influencer that doesn't show their children's face to take that issue off the table, but just, you know, makes money off their discussion of the art of motherhood. And that makes people really angry. And now that I am a mother, I'm kind of like, there is, a value in sharing the experience of being a mother and, you know, really advising people on being a mother. But historically, I think people get really angry when you treat the art of being a mother as a skill set and like almost a job in a way that you can teach other people. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And I think that influencers basically being able to turn mothering into a skill set that they can then monetize is really radical in a lot of ways. Because if you think about it, like this is something that women have been doing very, you know, silently for all of humanity. And the fact that that's now able to be monetized is actually very cool. I don't, I don't know. Like, I don't know. I well, think everything like, else is. That's, yeah, that's, the, that's thing. the thing. We live in a capitalist society and it's true. Like all these forms of labor that women have historically been asked to do for free, like beautifying themselves, mm-hmm. styling themselves in an appealing way, uh, at, you know, decorating homes that they live in, caring for their children people expect that to continue to be done for them for free and are very offended at the idea that women might find a way to get paid for that kind of work. And I think you're right. That's a huge part of what, and I spend a lot of time now ingesting mommy content and Mm -hmm. the enraged comments that people give, like, why are you getting paid for this? Like, this is just what a mother is supposed to do. Like, why do you think you deserve a pat on the back or a paycheck is it's like, don't you understand that everyone gets paid for doing work and that's how this whole society works? Right, right. And, you know, we could look at it as like a very radical, almost feminist way of being like, you know, taking these traditionally feminine invisible labors and kind of turning it on their heads. I mean, there's literally influencers who are cleaning influencers who yeah. like I love cleaning clean oh, influencer to- content. It's, it's so incredible. good. I know. It's so like cathartic, <laughs> but that's very radical, you know? Like imagine and that's what I think is really interesting about this industry is the barrier for entry. You know, obviously there is a lot of discrimination as there is in every single facet of American life, but the barrier for entry is a lot lower than, you know, corporate America, for example. And the fact that, you know, someone who is really skilled at cleaning could get a million followers and make a lot of money off of that skill set is something that I think we should celebrate, even though we absolutely can still treat it with the with seriousness and, you know, give it honest critique. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And like the criticisms that I think a lot of us have of influencer culture are really just criticisms of American culture writ large, mm-hmm. right? Racism, con- overconsumption, um, you know, class inequality, like all of these things are just easy to identify, I think, because we are consuming so much of these people's lives. And so they become emblematic. And yeah, I think there is both this like, there is this anger, as you said, at the idea that these women are putting all of that out there and then getting paid for it. And I wonder if it's like from certain parts of society because there is like a vested interest in women feeling like that labor isn't labor at all. And then from other women feeling like, well, I'm doing this labor and not getting paid. Like, why do you get to do that? And so they kind of end up getting that rage from like all all ends. It's so, it's really interesting. Well, I think there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, the American way is to kind of look at the person above you on the rung financially, whatever class wise and say, why am I not there? I'm angry that I'm not there. And so I think that's with influencers too, because, you know, they do make it part of the thing that helps influencers 
be successful is this authenticity that it's not hard, that they're not working hard, that they really are just sharing their life, that, you know, they're the friend in your pocket with good advice, which is a very, you know, typical influencer way to describe themselves. And so that kind of shoots them in the foot, though, because then everyone is like, well, you're not doing anything. Why are you making money? I'm angry that you have a million dollars, you know, Um, which is kind of one of the huge rubs of the influencer industry. It's like, I don't know, one of the themes in the book that I really tried to hammer home is like, authenticity is so important for influencers, but it's an extremely hard needle to thread because you have to do so many things at once. You have to be real, but kind of perfect. And you have to work hard, but not show it. And you have to, you know, you can make a ton of money from your career, but you can't have to pretend like you're not. Um, And it's, you know, it's a really hard juggling act, I think. Yeah, it's precarious. (laughs) What do you think the biggest misconception people have about influencers kind of on a macro level? Um. I think in general, people don't think about influencers in a, as a spectrum. I think a lot of people think that influencers in general are just like posting photos of the, like hot girls posting photos of like their boobs is something that <laughs> like I see a lot. Um, and that is like definitely the case. Like you can post photos of your boobs and get like 5 million followers. Like it's not that hard, but (laughs) I think like your point to that, it is like a mirror of American society is like really true or it's like, yeah, but you could, there's also a bunch of different types of influencers. So I think people, people really misunderstand that. And then I think in general, like misunderstanding, like, just that it is a business, which sounds so crazy, but like people are still really like flabbergasted. I I would say like a year or so ago, I said something about, um, in passing on my Instagram about an influencer agency. And I got a bunch of DMs from people saying like, why would an influencer have an agent? And I was like, really? Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, because like they're making deals with like, multi-billion dollar corporations like they need someone to do the negotiating for them like you know and that was kind of the problem (laughs) for so many years of the influencer industry where there was no one who had any sort of experience doing anything in these in these conversations with like target or walmart or you know verizon um and they were paying them pennies because they could um And so, like, the idea that influencers would, like, need people to work for them, would need, like, would have, like, a calendar to, like, plan out their content, like, blows people's mind. Like, it's actually crazy how many people think, like, influencers act the exact same that you and I do on Instagram. Like, your normal Instagram, like, I don't know about you guys, but I have, like, a normal Instagram, and then I have, like, my work Instagram, and, like, on my normal Instagram, like I take a photo of my baby and I just like put it on Instagram. And like, I would say probably 50% of people think that's what influencers do. Like, there's just like, (laughs) they really don't understand like at all that it's a business, which is really surprising. I will say that I think that has changed a little bit over the past like year or so, Um, Mm -hmm. but not as much as you would think. 
Yeah, I've noticed more influencers being a little bit more open or like more coverage of influencers getting more into the question of like, yeah, you can't have a bunch of professional quality photos of you and your children in the same frame unless you hire a photographer to do that. (laughs) Like this is not you snapping photos on your iPhone. It's so funny how easy it is to look at a photo like that and not realize that it must have taken like professional employees to make that happen. Um, it's like a jump that your mind doesn't want to make. I, I'm really fascinated by what you said about the range of influencing. And like we touched on this earlier when we talked about Mirna's account, that like there can be a lot of money in micro-influencing and a, a lot of value in micro-influencing. Like you can have under half a million followers or under 100,000 followers and still offer a lot of value to brands. And that really made me think like, wow, there must be a lot of influencers who fall into that category who are still offering a lot of value. So like, how much more viable and lucrative is influencing as a career path for the average influencer than we all might think? Like, is it really the case that there are, as I think I previously assumed, like 50 influencers who are making real money? Or is it like actually a job that a lot of people can have? Oh, no. I mean, I think you can easily make $100,000 a year with 30,000 followers. And like, I know of people who do that with about that follower count. Um, And, you know, I think that that's one really positive thing that came out of you know, what kind of derisively became known as like the black square on Instagram movement when, you know, George Floyd happened in 2020. And there was this real push for the influencer industry kind of sit back and be like, okay, we are a very um, white industry. We're a very, you know, racist industry in a lot of ways. And one of the things that people in the industry have really been able trying to push is it's really hard for influencers of color to grow as quickly as white influencers. But their value is oftentimes a lot greater than an influence, like an influencer with 5 million followers who a hundred of those followers like their posts and actually care about them is actually way less valuable to a a brand than even someone with 5,000 followers, but if 500 of their followers will buy their stuff. Um, So that's been like a really interesting self-correction where a lot of agents and people that work in the industry are sometimes more excited to work with smaller influencers with really high engagement rates because they will actually be able to deliver for brands. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like almost a case by case basis because, you know, if you're, for example, uh, I'm trying to think of something really obscure, like, a plant influencer, which exists. And, oh, that definitely exists. Yeah. I was going to say beekeeping, but... Yeah, I beekeeping influencer. <laughs> and you have, you know, 15,000 followers, but your 15,000 followers are extremely dedicated beekeeping enthusiasts. And you partner with Lowe's on a line of beekeeping equipment. You can make a lot of money because people are actually going to want to buy your stuff. So... That's a way that I feel like the money is really being spread around a lot more now where brands are really, especially savvy brands are really starting to understand that 
it can be really valuable to work with someone who, you know, is more niche or, you know, more nano influencer who, you know, can really appeal rather than just, you know, oh, we're only going to work with, we're going to work with all these same people who have all these followers and they're just going to be blasting products out constantly. Um, the ROI, I think for, for brands, especially again, like more niche brands, um, is really high. Yeah. I thought that seems to like really ring true to me too, because the wonderful thing is being able to find not just a a fashion influencer, but one that like fits exactly my aesthetic. Mm -hmm. And maybe they only have 7,000 followers, but we all followed this influencer because we want to look exactly like them. And that's really powerful (laughs) for a brand. As a petite person, (laughs) I can tell you, it is really nice that there are like a whole range of petite style influencers. Oh yeah. Different body types, like... Because it's hard. If you're only following women who are like 5'9 or taller, let me tell you, you buy some things and then none of it works on your actual (laughs) body. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, totally. And I think also that's what I think people are missing a little bit too is the influencers that I really, really like, like genuinely like, I want to buy their, I want to like click on their links. You know, if, I'm going to buy a dress from Hill House or something. And I and know I'm going to, like, go to the sale. Like, if I know that a blogger, influencer I really like is promoting it, like, I'll click through their link instead of just going to the website. Because if you want to, if you like someone, you kind of have that parasocial relationship with them. You want to support them. Um, Absolutely. And that's a way that small influencers can make a lot of money, too. Because... You know, if you have 5,000 followers, but all your 5,000 followers love you and you have an Amazon affiliate link, like you're going to make a lot of money. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, people just want to, they want to send you a little tip and then they also get whatever cool product you recommended. So it's like win-win. We're going to take another quick break and we'll be right back with the rest of our interview. Can you keep up? I like Okay, so you got engaged. Congrats. Now you may be wondering what comes next. If you're planning a wedding, the first thing you need to know about is Zola. With Zola, you can plan your entire wedding in one convenient place. From the day you get engaged and search for the venue to the day you send out your save the dates, make your registry, and even taste your cake. Zola has literally everything you need to make the whole process super easy and actually even enjoyable. There's even a five-star app that helps you plan on the go or, you know, from your couch, which is certainly how, uh, if I was planning a wedding, I would definitely want to do it as loungily as possible. (laughs) So important. I also just know myself. I, I know that planning any kind of event, like even a birthday party, can get very stressful. And so it's been really cool to see friends use Zola. It really seems to make everything a lot less stressful. And as a frequent wedding attender, I love to be able to hop on that Zola registry and just purchase a gift. Easy peasy. I know I've done it. I won't forget. Thank you, Zola. Yeah, everything's all in the same place. It's perfect. Start planning at Zola.com. That's Z-O-L-A.com. I am so glad that it's finally warming up. And it also means that I just want to have fun this summer and I don't want to be worrying about meal prep. And luckily, I can do something about that with 
factor, especially because they have so many meal options like Protein Plus, Keto, Vegetarian, something for every diet. Their fresh, never frozen meals are ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Make your whole day delicious. From breakfast to dessert, stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. I love having a few factor meals just sitting in my fridge, especially because I work from home. It's so nice to finish up a taping and not have to figure out what to cook myself. Just look in my fridge and be like, oh, in two minutes, I can be eating mushroom chicken thighs and wild rice or tomato basil chicken risotto or Santa Fe style green chili beef skillet. And they always have a nice like vegetable side. It feels well-balanced. I feel full after, and it's not a headache at all. Head to factormeals.com slash LTSI50 and use code LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code LTSI50 at factormeals.com slash LTSI50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. And we are back. And something we wanted to get into that you nodded to a little bit is the racism of the influencer industry, like all industries in this country. Um, But in the book, you do dig into that like substantial race gap faced by Black influencers. And this is something that we've definitely taken note of in Bachelor world, Mm -hmm. where contestants of color rarely get as much screen time, rarely get as many followers. Like, you know, you will have a blonde white woman who went home week three and she'll end up with more followers than a black contestant who went to like hometowns. Um, What factors do you think lead to this, to this gap? Uh, Racism. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly. Um, Yeah, I think racism. Like, it's not, I don't think it's really, I think it's pretty obvious. Um, And I think it's really disgusting, honestly, because I think, like, the fact that that racial gap exists on Instagram is such, like, should be such, like, a disturbing, again, if Instagram is a mirror, that's a really disturbing mirror into, like, the psyche of our country. If, like, all of the people people are following look exactly the same and they're these, like, tiny little white girls, like, that's pretty gross. Um, and in the book, I talk a lot about this study that was done in 2021, um, on this, you know, racial wealth gap among influencers and kind of looking at follower counts. And I mean, it's abhorrent how skewed the follower counts are towards white influencers. And like I said, um, one thing people in the industry are trying to do is, you know, if America is going to be racist, we're going to change the game so everyone gets a seat at the table. So what they're trying to do is, you know, really um, change the metric that brands look at into engagement rate rather than follower count, which I think is good for everyone across the board because that, you know, gets rid of people who are just, you know, buying followers doesn't really happen that much. It's a little more like people aren't just straight up buying followers really anymore. But you know, buying followers or doing, you know, loop giveaways or, you know, all these little tricks that I get followers. Um, it's really hard to fake your engagement rate or it's harder. Um, 
So I think that's like pretty good across the board. Um, and, you know, I think, I think that there has been some, uh, some improvements. I think brands kind of know now that they can't, you know, do one of these big influencer trips and only invite a bunch of white girls, which they were like a hundred percent doing before 2020, which is insane. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think there have been more opportunities given, but I think there's still obviously a lot of work to go and we have a lot of work to do for sure. What do you think can be done to to narrow that gap by, by audiences, like by normal people who are just following people? I mean, following more influencers of color, but like, are there other ways to kind of put pressure on the industry to change? Yeah, I think that during 2020, um, we saw a lot of people kind of, you know, think about it a little bit and be like, yeah, you know, why are we seeing photos from this event at Coachella and there's, you know, only white girls there? Um, So I think calling out the brands and putting pressure on the brands, because we've seen since 2020, I think that brands will only do something if it affects their bottom line. Um, And no one wants to be seen as the brand that's, you know, not being racially diverse. Um, So I think like just really keeping at it. And, you know, if you see a brand that is doing that, just kind of being like, hi, I wish you could have included XYZ person. Um, and yeah, you know, I think diversifying your feed sounds like a very trite way to support, but I think it actually really, um, you know, really is something that makes a difference. Um, and, you know, I think, you know, my feed has certainly got more diverse since 2020. And some of like my, I found like some really, really amazing influencers that I love to follow. So I think like, you know, just trying to be aware as a white person and trying to, you know, follow people, not just to like check a box, but because you enjoy their content. Yeah. And you'll actually engage with it. That's something I've noticed in bachelor world since 2020, as well as just a more concerted effort from accounts within the bachelor fandom space to really keep putting black contestants at the forefront um, Ash Talks Batches account is huge for this. Like, this is one of her Incredible. big things is just constantly sharing their content, reminding you that these people are out there, like, making content for you. And I think that that does have an impact because absolutely, it's often the case that people just slip through after their season is over. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the reality TV connection because yes. I mean, our favorite thing, <laughs> obviously, our favorite thing is the meeting place of influencing and reality TV because, like you said earlier, they have a lot of similarities. They are largely like focused towards a female audience. They're not taken very seriously, um, and it's like a relatively new and unregulated industry. In each case, it relies on normal people sharing huge amounts of, quote unquote, themselves mm-hmm. uh, in order to fuel the content. And I think what we've started to see is just that influencing is like the backdoor path to getting paid for doing reality TV. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean... How do you see that relationship? Like, is it symbiotic or is it essentially like 
the reality TV world is sort of parasitic on the influencing <laughs> industry because that's the way to actually like make yeah, money. <laughs> Honestly, I don't think it's just reality TV. I think it's all famous people. Like, mm. I think all famous people act like influencers now. Like, honestly. And, mm. like, even people like Sydney Sweeney are doing influencer deals to boost their, like, pop, like money from acting or whatever. I think a really good example was, like, Reese Witherspoon announced her divorce in a notes app on her Instagram. And, like, that <laughs> is, like, oh, my God. Like, influencers have, like, come into the A-list. Like, Reese Witherspoon acts like an influencer. <laughs> like, it's it's insane. Um, so, yeah, I think it's not just reality TV. I think, like, everyone is trying to do both now and, like, build their profile. Um, but I do think that The Bachelor in particular, like, there was this, like, golden year period. I think it was, like, 2016 to 20, like, 18 or 19, yeah. where, like, yeah. you could go on The Bachelor and you could get, like, eighth place and you would get, like, a million followers. It was insane. And it's definitely not the case anymore. Um, no. <laughs> but it's, that was like a very interesting phenomenon that didn't really, didn't really happen in other reality TV. I mean, like, I think the old Love is Blind. Love is Blind. That did, yeah. Deep T got a lot of followers, I remember. Um, but again, I feel like that doesn't continue happening every season. Right? No. It's like. It's almost like you have to, like, why do you think that is, that it's not evenly spread, that it'll just be, like, one show at one point in time that seems to be really minting Instagram influencers, and you can go on another show and kind of get nowhere? I don't really know. Um, I think with Love is Blind, it's fairly obvious that Love is Blind was, like, this phenomenon mm -hmm. um, where, I don't know, I... I I watched the first season, obviously, and then the season with, like, Deep T and Natalie and all of them. I think that was season two. Um, yeah. But I haven't watched the latest one, so I kind of fell off. And I think, like, it's not as big of a phenomenon as it is now. Or, like, the first couple seasons of Selling Sunset, like, the people who are on Selling Sunset now are not becoming as famous as the people who are on in the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, but with The Bachelor... There was this, like, I think I wrote about it when I was at BuzzFeed. Like, there was this, like, three-year period where, like, all of a sudden people became really famous for being on The Bachelor on Instagram, and then it just died. And, like, no one ever got to be an influencer again. <laughs> and I think... Go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I think it's it's funny that that's, like, solidified so quickly as an expectation that the idea that people are going on just to become influencers both among the contestants themselves and among the audience has not gone away, even as it's become so much harder, harder to actually make that breakthrough. I think it was that that was the period where like becoming famous on Instagram, like becoming an Instagram influencer, like that was kind of a sweet spot where you could enter um, if you weren't already doing blocking or whatever, like it was kind of this really high period of growth for Instagram. And I think that was what happened. Like it was kind of the confluence of events. Um, but then I think after Peter's season, people started to get really mad in the Bachelor fandom where they were like, <laughs> everyone's just trying to be an influencer. Like, 
you know, Hannah Ann was like obviously trying to be an influencer. I'm sorry. Like, or like Maddie. <laughs> so is she like a flower arranging influencer? Well, she is. She is an point. influencer. Yeah. Maddie Pruitt is an influencer. A god influencer. Yeah. yeah. I, like Maddie Influencer Pruitt, of the Lord. It, Maddie Pruitt, I could do like an entire podcast deep dive. I'm so fascinated by <laughs> <Same>. her <laughs> and her journey. Um, but yeah, like I think that was just like this like halcyon period for like bachelor influencers. Um, I mean, has anyone really popped off from like the last season of The Bachelor? I can't even name any of the girls. I didn't watch this last season, but. Yeah, um, I, I I think on a smaller scale, like I do think that you can still become an influencer of some kind, but you, it is not guaranteed in the way that it used to be. I think some of it is certainly moving to TikTok. Like you have someone like Anna Redman who didn't really pop on Matt James's season, but had enough of a following that because she's fairly skilled on TikTok, she's now really in the mix with a lot of high-profile influencers. Um, Someone like Ariel Frankel from this last season, she's doing pretty well on Instagram. I mean, she was in the top three. She only has 157,000 followers, but it's 157,000 followers. Like, it's not nothing. Yeah. So I think yeah. that there are still pathways, but it is not that, like, I think for the audience, it felt like this is the number one reason people are there and they are going to be anointed. And the show, it almost took the show a few years to integrate that expectation into the narrative. So it like almost feels more prevalent now, even though we're past the peak. Totally. Because now they're starting to like talk about it on the show. Totally. Totally. Um, yeah, I think I think that that also was always kind of the case a little bit. Like, I think there were a few women who really took the opportunity they were handed on a silver platter and ran with it. Like, comes to mind is like Jade Roper, for example. Like, mm-hmm. she has really been able to build herself as like a parenting influencer in a way that she, you know, that was planned. And I like kudos to her. Um, and I think. You know, especially with TikTok, I think people, it's a good jumping off point. You know, it's like, it's a lot easier to go from being on The Bachelor to having an Instagram presence or TikTok presence than it is just like a random person on the platforms. Yeah, at least you you got a hook. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you, and like, I feel like TV recapping is so big on TikTok now that like, you can really get in the mix by being like that's me or like doing some behind the scenes or um, all of that kind of stuff. Yeah. I feel like the, the women on the bachelor also might've run into a bit of a, an authenticity question, because if you didn't already work as like a fashion editor or run a running a, a blog, then it's sort of like, seems like you ended up with a bunch of followers and you were like, great, now I can sell them stuff. Which is how I, because that's kind of how I came to learn about influencing, that's how I thought of it. Mm-hmm. And so when I started learning about this whole, like, history of, like, fashion blogging and mommy blogging and how that kind of expertise came before the deals, that's kind of the reverse of how we think of, like, a bachelor person getting into influencing. Yeah. <laughs> and I 
I feel like that kind of eventually dinged the authenticity both on and off the show. Like, I feel like it's kind of hurt their credibility on both ends, like both as Bachelor contestants and as influencers. Oh, absolutely. And I do think, though, that I think there's a lot of women who, you know, maybe aspire to do the types of things that influencers do who would be attracted to going on The Bachelor, you know, where it's like, you know, I would like to build a name for myself based on my personality. That's kind of the whole conceit of The Bachelor contestant. And also there's like so much invisible labor attached to going on The Bachelor. You have to do your own hair. You have to do your own makeup. You have to know the products that you can like take to, you know, a a resort in Mexico without air conditioning and do yourself up to still look good on camera. Like, And you have to have a good personality for TV. So, yeah, you have to pop in some capacity. So I think what you're pointing to is exactly right right stuff. That's interesting. Right. I mean, it's not it's not like a huge stretch to be like, oh, I'm someone who is interested in going on reality TV and like building a name for myself based on my personality and my fashion and my beauty. And then once you're off the show saying, I feel like I can make a career out of myself talking about myself and my fashion. Like, that's just not a huge leap, in my opinion. Yeah, it's absolutely not. Uh, it makes a lot of sense, actually. And you mentioned the the mommy blogging or influencing transition that Jade did. And that's something we wanted to talk about for sure, because that is like one of the best ways to have a lasting influence empire after you go on The Bachelor is to end up in a couple, preferably from a franchise show so that the the world knows both of you and knows your love story. And then you can transition into like family influencing as you start having children. And it's always seemed from the outside, like that seems like when you really hit the jackpot. Like what does it mean financially for an influencer to be able to start featuring their babies in addition to just like solo content about fashion or makeup or whatever? Well, I think it just opens up this whole new world of products to sell, you know, like, you know, you buy a lot of stuff. (laughs) Me? No. I found it all on the side of the road. (laughs) Like, um, yeah, I think it's like, moving into a completely different genre. You know, if you can make money off your fashion and your workouts and your beauty and your food, it's just opening up this whole other thing where, you know, parenting is billion, billion dollar business, you know? Um, And there are so many products you have to buy. I mean, there are so many products you have to buy for the first six months of your baby's life that you like never use again, (laughs) which is insane. Um, So, yeah, it's extremely lucrative. Um, And it's also a way to really, you know, I think the followers that followed you for your personality will stick with you once you become a mother. Because if you relate to the ways that someone mothers, I think it's really easy to um, really relate to them and really want to support them in a way. Um, At least that's how I feel. Yeah. And you're probably at a point in your life when you're like, if you're a mom, when you're really looking for moms that you relate to in some way that you can kind of look to for commiseration and guidance. And that's a really powerful feeling. Uh, But like, as you recently become a parent yourself and you also were interviewing influencers and their kids for this book, a 
especially Shannon Bird, whose kids are starting to get older and have their own opinions. Like, did all that change how you think about influencers in the family space and like the ethical issues? Like, have you changed how you consume parenting influencers at all? That's such a good question because I wrote the book primarily while I was pregnant. And then I had the baby, I had my baby and I really sat down and I think line by line reabsorbed what I wrote when I recorded my audiobook a few months ago. And a lot of the parenting stuff, I feel like I did really just relate to and obviously in a completely different way because now I have my own baby. And I think what I understand even more now is the desire to share your mothering experience with other people because I, I just guess I didn't expect, like, I think there's something innate in mothers that you just want to connect with other moms so badly and you want to share your experiences, whether good or bad. And I just find myself talking about my baby all the time. (laughs) And I'm like, my baby, my baby. Like, I'm like, oh my God, I'm so (laughs) annoying. But like, I sometimes feel compelled to share her on my feed. And, you know, I, you know, my husband and I like decided we weren't going to share her and, you know, whatever. But, um, you know, that the few times that I've shared anecdotes on my like journalistic feed about being a mom, I've just gotten so many amazing responses and feedback. And I think like my new perspective is I totally understand why people do it. And I think that there's something really powerful in this online sharing of motherhood, but I think it's really difficult as well because I think that there is an ethical way to show your children as part of an influencer career, but I think it's a really hard line to stick to. I think Mm -hmm. some people do it really well, but I think the problem right now is the government has decided that they're going to leave it up to the morality and boundaries of individual, individual, individual parent and be completely hands off, which like, that's never going to work. That's why we have a government is like, if we left everything up to like, okay, you guys just police yourselves. Like we would be in complete anarchy. And that's essentially what it is. You know, we can't rely on parents to do good by their children. And I think YouTube is a huge example of that because there are so many children exploited on YouTube every single day in ways from like really, really serious things to, you know, being filmed 12 hours a day or children on TikTok, you know, being shown like their potty training journeys and all of this stuff. Like it's, you know, it's really, really bad. Um, so I wish there were boundaries. I wish there was, you know, some sort of guidebook or laws that people needed to stick to. So people, you know, didn't have to just police themselves. Um, I am really, really curious to see what the next generation of kids, um, thinks about being online because I think that there's a strong possibility that a lot of people who were, you know, exploited by their parents on the internet will be upset about it and that will spur some change. But I also think that in terms of benign sharing, kids might be more okay with it than we think 
And I really just kind of changed my perception of this because of the way that Gen Z acts on the internet. <laughs> and they're, they're very much like, we don't really care. I mean, they're posting their like childhood trauma on the internet, mm-hmm. on TikTok. And yeah. so I don't think we really know yet what it, you know, if you're someone who your parents are influencers and you're shown on the account, but like your embarrassing stuff isn't shown, like you're shown as a very benign figure. I don't know that I necessarily have a problem with that as long as I think the children should be compensated. Um, But I do think there should be very strict boundaries. And I think that children should only be shown, you know, 25%, 30% of the time. Um, But are we seeing any sort of like, um, like push for legal change in states where, where influencing is huge? Or do we think that comes maybe later? So there's been, there was a push um, by a teenager a few years ago in Washington state who they um, worked the lawmaker to put forth the law, um, like kind of drawing some boundaries on the internet, but it didn't really get anywhere. I think I saw on the internet that it's like picking up again, maybe. Um, California has attempted a few times, but it's it's not really something that I think that anytime it comes up, it's always by lawmakers who are our age. And I don't think that a lot of politicians that's even on their radar because lawmakers are like 80 years old. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I'm not do, following. <laughs> I do think that that's something that we'll see happen within the next 10 years or so for sure. Yeah. I thought it was really fascinating to hear directly from some of Shannon's older kids who are in their teens and the power struggle that kind of emerges where they don't want to be in her content as much anymore. And it's like that battle that you have with your kids is they're asserting their independence, but usually we see it around like doing their chores or like driving their siblings to practice or whatever. It's like, what can I do to get you to agree to be in my content? And I thought that was really interesting that for them, it was, it just becomes this component of your family obligation. And that that the mom is in this position of being like their boss, as well as their parent. Like, how do I get a good performance out of my child slash employee? That's like really fraught. And the only way out of it is to stop like doing her job. Like, she's like, I'm a mommy influencer. Like I can't do my job if I can't get like convince my kids to be in my content. And that just seems like such a impossible dynamic to balance to me. Like that really stressed me out actually. Like, am I over reading that? Like, was it stressful for you to observe? No, that's like, I think that's like one of the most interesting things that I like discovered in writing the book and, you know, I would love to, I would hope that people really use that to spark some conversation because I certainly don't know what to do about that. And I see so many sides of it. And I, I think it's something that we should be discussing and we're not. And that's, that's one of the downfalls of not treating this industry seriously is that these real issues that are affecting real children are not really being discussed with any sort of sincerity and seriousness. Um, so I'm glad that's what you took away from it because that's something I'm like, yeah, let's talk about it. Um, yeah, no, I always want to talk, 
talk about it now that I, I also like always want to share my son and I also don't share him publicly. And it is this like very, yeah, it just feels like a very difficult question to resolve. Because even as, you know, we're journalists, like, again, when you're a journalist, part of the job description now is, you know, having this public facing profile. Mm -hmm. And I totally related to what Caitlin says in the book in a really different way, where she said, it just felt, how can I not share her? And I was like, I totally understand that because I have this platform that, again, I don't really share anything about my personal life, but my daughter is such a huge part of my life that I, I have this weird feeling where I'm like, I want people to see her. Like, I care so much more about her than I care about like other things, you know? Um, I'm thinking about her all the time. Yeah. It starts to feel like you're just sharing, like what you're sharing publicly is just like stuff that happens on the margin of your mind. Because right. at the center is the, the, the baby. And you're like, right. but that's not going to be in the frame. It's all this like marginalia. Right. And, you know, I, I'm not someone who makes a living off my life. You know, I'm... And, you know, but I do think like, so I can't imagine if your job is selling yourself, essentially, um, how much more of a quagmire that really is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. My God. It sounds, it sounds very difficult to navigate, but yeah, her story is so interesting. Something else that we wanted to touch on is obviously, and you talk about this in the book as well, like in, in response to kind of the rise and ubiquity of influencing, a whole network of media dedicated to snarking on influencers, tearing down influencers has sprung up around them. How do you see this impacting influencers' like mental health and what it means to do that job for years? It's really bad. Um you know, GMI, which is like this big influencer snark site has been around for basically as long as influencers have been around. And we're really the first people on the internet to talk about influencers that weren't influencers. Like it was the first place where they were ever covered in any sort of way. Um, and I personally, you guys can tell me what you think about this. I kind of draw a through line from like GMI to like the way people talk about celebrities now, because Mm -hmm. I think like this culture of obsessively talking about the things people share on the internet and just kind of like snark culture has really permeated like every part of our lives. Um, Yes. And I think it's really, really difficult. Like, it's really only gotten worse. Like these communities to snark have only gotten bigger. And I think it's really difficult. And that's why I think like, it's probably one of the hardest things about being an influencer is navigating the fact that no matter what you do, like no matter what you do in your job, part of the trade-off for all of the great things about being an influencer, like working for yourself, getting all these perks, making a lot of money. Like people are going to like make fun of you or tear you down like every second of the day. 
Yeah, whether it does not seem worth it to me, to be honest. No, it doesn't make it, it doesn't (laughs) seem worth it to me either. You know, like I feel like all of us as journalists, we get like a small snippet of it because. And it's still too much. It's still too much. Yeah. It's horrible. (laughs) So like, you know, we'll get bad comments on our articles or whatever. And I'm like, well, this sucks. (laughs) And they're just talking about like my random musings on, I don't know, whatever I write about, reality TV or influencers or whatever. And if they were saying that about, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, I don't have, I don't have the, um, the skill set or personality to be an influencer. I know that about myself, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) so you weren't tempted to like go over into influencing. No, there were times when I was like reading about how much money they make. And I was like, okay, okay. I could work 18 hours a day making photo shoots and see what happens. I've been encouraging Claire to (laughs) enter the world of maternity influencing. I'm almost out of time. You have a couple months left. I could never handle it. It it sounds terrifying. But I think it's interesting that you say that that feels like the root because I like, to me, like my sort of adult media consumption goes back to like gawker and celebrity blogging, which arose like in the early aughts. And it's all, to me, it all came at the same time. It I all think. came at the yeah. same time, right? There was this explosion because I do think that there was this explosion of outlets that no longer had this kind of devil's bargain with celebrities, right? Like they didn't need to be, they had, celebrities had no leverage over like a Perez Hilton or a GOMI, you know, shit poster. So there's this sudden explosion of people who are like, oh yeah, we can just like hold these people accountable. We can be as mean and snarky as we want. And that has, yeah, that has not gone away. (laughs) No, it's absolutely exploded. You see it all over Reddit too. There are like subreddits dedicated to specific influencers. And you understand in a sense why people want a space to talk about these people because they are putting themselves out there for public consumption. But then it gets so vicious so easily. I mean, I follow like a mid, like not even, doesn't even have that many followers, like fashion influencer who's fairly successful on TikTok and Instagram. And she will post the most benign things. And the comments are like, horrifically vicious things about her body. Oh, yeah. Or, like, about her relationship and people demanding that she share her boyfriend who she got back together with and then also, like, ridiculing her for getting back together with her ex-boyfriend. And I'm just like, this is so wild and exhausting. And I, I am always trying to think about, like, what is the draw for people to spend, to find community by way of like communal cruelty to someone's persona, like the amount of time that is spent in these spaces being angry about someone you don't know. I, I, it's wild. It's like honestly a huge question of my life that I want to like somehow solve because I think you're 100% right. One of the reasons why I like things like blog snark sometimes is I don't want to hate on people. I just want to gossip about them. Like, <laughs> yeah. and I, I do not, like, I say this in the book, I do not post. I've never posted. I'm a lurker. But 
someone breaks up with their boyfriend or someone like posts something crazy or is like, you know, all this stuff. And it's like a natural thing to be like, oh my God, did you see this? That's crazy. But what I do not understand is the viciousness is insane. I mean, yeah, I, I can't, I don't, and it's, it's not even influencers anymore. It's like no, it's every, everywhere. It's, every, it's everything. Any public figure, any at public this point. figure, like people just go into these like rabbit holes of like making up stuff and like it's really I don't know. I feel yeah. like something's wrong, but I, I don't feel know like how even to fix influencers it. and celebrities are the least of it at some point because at least they sort of volunteered. Like not that it makes it feel good. But it's also stuff like West Elm Caleb or like that guy who wasn't excited enough when his girlfriend surprised him at his college dorm. Like, and people like tore his life apart. Like, this is not even a public figure. It's just someone who draws the attention of some sort of critical mass of people that they don't know. And it they're treated with that same level of like aggrieved skepticism as if they're trying to sell us all something. It's very <laughs> and scary. It's, that's, just our t- yeah. that's just our posture towards anyone that we learn about now. <laughs> I think that's true. But I also think with, with influencers, because they are trying to sell us something and that is their job, there's almost like a permission structure built in then to be collectively angry. Mm-hmm. And there is this like, I think this people feel like, well, you did this, you asked for this, so I'm actually allowed to treat you this way because you're also in a sense like using me. So mm. this is what you deserve in return. Um, and yeah, I've been very disturbed when I go down rabbit holes. Um, I is too, terrifying. Yeah, Gomi is so scary. And it's really um, scary. I mean, really scary. it doesn't I, even work. I was work, like in the but... Gawker hole for like a decade of my life. Same. Yeah. Very, I like that. I was like, I love reading blogs about how much Julie Allison sucks. This is hilarious. <laughs> and even for me, <laughs> Gio Amai is way too much a lot of the time. It's scary. Yeah. I, but I think the gossip piece is so interesting because that to me is like exactly why there is this tie between influencers and reality TV stars. Like, and the reason that I think a lot of reality stars end up making a living in influencing because people have an interest about their relationships and if they break up and like, we want all this information about them. And so if they're already giving us that, why shouldn't they also be like using all those eyeballs to make a living? Oh, yeah, 100%, 100%. And, you know, I think it can be, you know, Shannon really kind of dealt with this too, where she was like, well, if you guys are going to hate on me and watch my content, I'm going to make you work. You know, I'm going to make you pay me Um, with, (laughs) you know, middling results, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's slightly harder to monetize hateful attention, but it was interesting reading about the different approaches that she took through her her rocky journey. I mean, we were we were wondering like what you thought about the future for influencing as a whole, but also just for individual influencers facing all of this, you know, this onslaught of abuse and 
also like trying to navigate this, uh, you know, content can be a, a sort of um, unreliable field, like different platforms come and go, different ways of getting attention come and go. And like, it's easy to be made sort of obsolete if you're dependent on one of those. Like, what is what does it look like to be an individual influencer? Is that like a lifelong career path? Or is it the case that like a lot of them are going to be like burning out, leaving the field or just like kind of steadily losing the the attention that they need to keep monetizing? I think most influencers probably would like to use their influencer career to eventually build a sustainable business where they don't have to show themselves 100% of the time, where their business isn't themselves. At least that's what a lot of people have told me. Mm. Um, I think Amber Clark is a really great example where she started as a Mormon mommy blogger and then really had this huge influencer career and then started a hair care brand called Day. And now she's still an influencer, but, you know, Day is sort of sold at Sephora. Like it's, you know, she doesn't have to show as much of herself. Like if you followed her for a while, to me, it seems very obvious that she is kind of showing what she wants. And she also took her kids Mm -hmm. off her feed, which I thought was really interesting. Um, You know, she started as a mommy blogger. And... I think that's the goal for many people. And I think everyone has a different idea of what that looks like. Um, whether that's, you know, starting a podcast or, you know, starting a brand or, you know, investing in something, investing in a brand. Um, but I think that for many people, you can't show a hundred percent of your life to the masses as a career forever. At least that's what people are telling me. Um, And I think it's a really good, um, I don't know, launching off point, I guess. Yeah. And you you end the book talking about Gen Z influencers, kind of this up-and-coming generation of influencers for whom kind of mixing the personal and the professional and the confessional online comes as second nature that it, in a way that it didn't even for millennials. What do you see as the the future of influencing? Gen Z is so much more savvy, which makes sense because our generation, influencing didn't exist. So they really laid the groundwork. And Gen Z, I think, is just so much savvier and they're way less platform dependent, which I think is really smart because, like you said, if you tie yourself 100% to one platform, it can be really hard to shift. Um I think a really good example is there's this girl who I followed when I was on maternity leave because I was obsessed with her TikToks. Um, And I think one other thing that Gen Z does really well is their content is not so siloed. You know, when we were Mm -hmm. coming up, it was very much you were an Instagram person or a YouTube person. You know, it was kind of like you do video or you do photos. And Gen Z is very much like, I write, I do video, I do photos, I do everything. And so this girl that I followed, I really liked her fashion, but I got into her because she posted these like very soothing day in my life videos. And she has two little kids and she's like 25 or 26. And I just really got into her. So I got into her through her video, but then I followed her on Instagram primarily because I wanted to shop her links, which I think is like, shows how much more evolved Gen Z influencers really are, (laughs) that that's the pathway. 
And she's already started her own business. Like, she's been doing it for six months, and she's already started her own company. Um, She started this jewelry line. Um, And so I think that they just have, and I think they're also a lot more transparent than influencing as a job. I think a lot of the early influencers really kind of wavered on, do I pretend like this isn't work or do I show it's work? And Gen Z is so much more like, yep, I'm an influencer. This is my job. And they do this thing called PR hauls, which I really enjoy where they show all the stuff they get. Uh, All over TikTok. Yeah. And it's just like, they're just way more smart and savvy about it, which makes sense because they didn't have to build it from scratch. They were able to enter, you know, when it was already established. So I think that, I think that actually Gen Z is probably going to give the industry a lot more, um, I don't know, gravitas seems like the wrong word, but like a lot more, um, work a lot more towards it being like, yeah, this is an accepted career that people have. Um, and you know, in 10 years or so, it'll kind of be like, you know, being on reality TV or being like a low level celebrity where it's like, you're not treated with as much respect, but it's not as seen as just like bottom of the barrel as it was. I mean, hey, yeah. they're inviting TikTok influencers to the Met Gala. Oh yeah, so that yeah. did not that did not really happen for for Instagram influencers in the same way. No, and what I really love about it is they're just so they just can create so many. They can just do so. They're so creative, you know. Like it's really impressive. Yeah, like they just they're. I just feel like I love consuming younger influencers' content because I really get things out of it. Where it's like they show fashion in a really fun way. They show like makeup in a really fun way. And like, I can read them and, or I can watch them. Like, I don't know. I just think that it's really exciting to watch them for sure. The multimedia experience. Right. Yeah. They're like <laughs> MMJs. <laughs> yeah. It's like making it harder and harder for me to ever envision being an influencer. Cause I can't make original video content, No, um, but I respect it. And I hope that we're seeing the same thing happen in reality TV as well. That like these two industries that are have been treated kind of as if they aren't work to be involved in, mm-hmm. but that there's, you know, huge amounts of money being made off of this content that they're producing. Like, it seems like you write in your book, like for a while people are like, oh, this bubble is about to burst. But what if instead what's going to happen is that it's sort of professionalized, that it's like, becomes more established. We all get comfortable with the idea of this industry like existing and being treated as real work that people deserve to be compensated for doing. And I think that's probably the best case scenario for both reality TV cast members and influencers. So I felt kind of hopeful by the end in a weird way. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's way more likely than all of a sudden we wake up tomorrow and Instagram and influencers, <laughs> TikTok influencers and reality TV stars don't exist. I mean, they've been raptured. They're yeah. Gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, I think that for, this is going to sound crazy, but I think that Vanderpump rules this season has done more to legitimize reality TV as an art form. I 100% agree. They deserve all the Emmys. Variety has them on their shortlist for an Emmy. I know. It's insane. It's insane. And they deserve it. 
They truly They're deserve it. They're the culture in a way no arch. other show I've has. never watched as compelling television as like the past Neither like, have I. I even got, I got Claire to to watch. Yeah. And she'd never seen a single I'd episode. I'd never seen so. it. So, and it was, it was worth, it was worth every minute of learning about the past 10 seasons of Vanderpump Rules in order to enjoy <laughs> that finale. It was an art form. And yeah. Now you got to start uh, from the beginning. Yeah, I know. Well, I was like, maternity leave is coming up. The baby oh, and yeah. I are going to be watching a lot of... <laughs> a lot of VPR. VPR. Oh, God, I can't wait for you. I'm, like, jealous that you get to experience it again that's for so, the first time. That's so exciting. I'm so happy yeah. for you. Thank you. And for anyone here, just a little plug, who does not know all about Vanderpump Rules, uh, you can listen to a two-hour podcast over on Rich Text in which I explained all of the historical context about Scandaval to Claire. And she was so informed that she was able to watch the finale. Yeah, and I didn't miss anything. So it's very <laughs> it's very well done by Emma. So we wanted to end just by asking you, Steph, what's one thing that you want people who read your book to take away from it and kind of incorporate into their understanding of how they interact with influencers? I think that they... What I would love is if people reflect how influencers have influenced them and it changes the way that they interact with influencers, whether it's, you know, figuring out who they really do want to support, who they really do want to follow rather than just like mindless scrolling or I don't know that they can look with a little bit more nuance and seriousness, seriousness about influencers and kind of incorporate that into how they follow them going forward, no matter what that looks like, I guess. Yeah, I, I love, love that. that. It's a great place for us to wrap up. Steph, can you tell all of our listeners where they can find you, your work, obviously your book? Everyone go order it now. Yay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the best place to find me is on Instagram at Steph E. McNeil. That's where I spend most of my public time. Um, and I am now writing for Glamour Magazine, which I started a few months ago. So I'm also over there writing as well. And uh, we, you can find your book, yeah, wherever books are sold, I assume. Uh, again, it's called Swipe Up for More Inside the Unfiltered Lives of Influencers. Congratulations it's again. So good. Yes. Thank, yeah. you. Congrats, Thank uh, you. Thank you so it's much, It's really guys. good. And uh, on that note, that's it for Love to See It with Emma and Claire. Thanks to our guest, Stephanie McNeil. Love to See It is produced by us, Claire Fallon and Emma Gray and Stitcher. This episode was edited by Talon Stradley. Our theme music is by Tamar Haviv and our art is by Celine Chang. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. If you like the show, please follow us, rate us five stars, leave a review, tell all your friends about our show, post a notes app, grid post about it, you know, do a TikTok like about Reese it. Be like Witherspoon. Put it out there. If you want to get in touch, you can always email us at clarendemmapod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and TikTok at Love to See It Pod and Instagram at clarendemmapod. And you can find our other newsletter, Rich Text, on Substack at clarendemma.substack.com. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram at Rose, And I'm at Claire E. Fallon. We'll be back next week with our finale recap of The Ultimatum Queer Love. Ditcher. 
you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 